Father, I think it's too quiet. We don't know what to do with it. Perhaps you do. By word and spirit, we pray that you would speak into our lives as followers of Jesus. Remind us of that salvation we have in him, the forgiveness of sins, the reality of life everlasting today, which is ours. But also we pray, remind us of how that salvation is lived out. What that looks like for us as not just believers, but as disciples. We love you. We thank you for loving us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, grace, peace, and mercy to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, very good. Much better than that 8.30 crowd this morning, right? You got to get your cowboy voice on, right, for this afternoon? Yeah, there you go. 3.30 today. All right. Last week, if you weren't here with us, you missed something else. Why is that? Well, we went out to dinner. Well, not really, okay. Uh, (laughs) Sorry if you missed it. You should have been here, but let me tell you, it wasn't much of an experience. You didn't miss much. (laughs) It was an invitation from a Pharisee to his house to join him and all the guests that had arrived as well. Sycophants, social climbers, condescending scholars, religious officials, possibly a few neighbors, uh, and oh yeah, (laughs) a really sick guy. And Jesus, that was the dinner party. (laughs) Like I said, you didn't miss much. I mean, you can go and listen online if you want to catch up, if you're so inclined. Uh, But this dinner party that we were invited to, this dinner party where Jesus was present was a setup. It was a bait and switch, and it was an attempt by the Pharisees to entrap Jesus into violating the Sabbath law. The way it went was they invited him in, and um, they sat this sick guy right in front of Jesus. I mean, you couldn't miss him. Knowing that Jesus would not look at human suffering without doing something, they figured, well, it's the Sabbath. That means he's, if we put this guy right in front of Jesus, Jesus is going to heal him on the Sabbath and got him. <laughs> However, Luke chapter 14 tells us, though, that even as Jesus does heal the man on the Sabbath, their plan backfires. (laughs) Because it's not Jesus who is trapped, but it's the guests who are trapped. They discover that they're caught in their own self-deceit. We keep the man-made laws, but what's been revealed to us this this evening at the dinner table is that we don't love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and we certainly don't love our neighbor as we love ourselves because we just used our neighbor to get to Jesus. They are no closer to God than before. I mean, the irony in this situation is, is <laughs> seated at the table is grace and mercy and power and forgiveness and truth, and they are blind and deaf to it all. They are the ones who are sick and in need of healing, <laughs> not Jesus and not the man that Jesus ends up healing. Anyway, 
This is where we're picking up the story today. The meal is over. Jesus has left the house. And as Jesus leaves the house, a large crowd begins to gather around Jesus and follow uh, Jesus. All right? And it's this sudden surge where we pick up the text. So Mike's going to put the text on the screen. And this text today is actually from the message. Uh, I don't use the message a lot, but when I do, it's uh, with purpose. Um, and we'll hopefully make sense as I go through it. But here it is. Uh, One day when large groups of people were walking around with him, Jesus turned and told them, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. Is there anyone here who planning to build a new house? doesn't first sit down and figure the cost so you'll know you, if you can complete it? If you only get the foundation laid and then run out of money, you're going to look pretty foolish. Everyone passing by will poke fun of you. He started something he couldn't even finish. Or can you imagine a king going into battle against another king without first deciding whether it's possible with his 10,000 troops to face the 20,000 troops of the other? And if he decides he can't, won't he send an emissary and work out a truce? Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. Salt's excellent, but if the salt goes flat, it's useless, good for nothing. Are you listening? Really listening? (laughs) Kiss it goodbye. (laughs) Love that phrase. Arrivederci, right? All right. So Jesus leaves the house and great crowds follow. But here's the deal. He is not at all impressed by the crowds that have gathered around him, as we might be, right, if crowds were gathering around us. Because it's not hard, and it's simply based on precedence, it's not hard uh, to know that the bulk of the crowd isn't at all interested in spiritual things, right? That's not why they're following him. I mean, some wanted to see miracles. Uh, others heard that he fed the hungry, and, and even some hoped that, uh, that he was there to overthrow Rome and establish the kingdom of David right before their, their, their very eyes. But here's what we find in the majority that had surged around him today, uh, or this day, is that their expectations were wrong. Their expectations were wrong. So think about that. Let's stop right there. Talk about expectations. How important are realistic expectations? So tomorrow morning, you've got to go to the DMV, the mega center. And if you expect to walk in that door and be out in 30 minutes, (laughs) I'm sorry, but your expectations are wrong, right? But if you pack a picnic and perhaps a suitcase, right? If you take your tablet reader and download as many books as games as possible, right? And enter into the DMV with no expectation of getting out of there, you're not going to be as frustrated, right? But seriously, in terms of expectations, entering into marriage, right? You've got to have the right expectations. Um, Your first... uh, uh, Think about my daughter going off to her first semester in college, right? Expectations, not only her expectations of what the college experience will be like, but our expectations as parents, right? What we expect. (laughs) 
Think about it this way, and I think it's close enough to the beginning of the school year that this works, uh, still works. The first day of class, usually, is that opportunity when teachers explain to the students expectations, right? They lay it out before the kids and the parents, if it's, uh, if it's you know, they're visiting on, on parent preview night or whatever it is, but everyone knows the expectations before uh, school starts. Classroom behavior, homework, testing, you get the idea. And the student who knows the expectations and fulfills the expectations is going to do a lot better than the student, right, who doesn't. Right? So let me ask you this. As we number ourselves in that crowd, what are your expectations of Jesus? Can you articulate them? Can you, if I were to give you a piece of paper and a pencil, could you write down two or three expectations that you have of Jesus? And in so doing, though, tell me where those expectations come from. Is it out of Scripture, or did you come up with these expectations in your own mind? And then draw a line underneath that and then write, what are Jesus' expectations of me? Saved by his shed blood and resurrection and called into a life of discipleship by the power of the Holy Spirit and the waters of baptism, do you think that there are expectations of you and me as followers of Christ? I mean, there certainly were expectations of his inner circle in first century Judea, right? Well, then there's expectations, brothers and sisters, I think, for us as well. Will our lives reflect in word and deed what we say we believe with head and heart. Now, Jesus was a teacher, and he turns to the crowd and gives them a little lesson, right? And this lesson is meant to lay out expectations for those who are gathered there that day. And to be honest with you, it's also meant to thin the ranks. <laughs> he makes it very clear that when it comes to discipleship, he is more interested in quality than quantity. Now, in the matter of saving souls, he wants his house to be filled, and he promises us his house will be filled. Uh, but in the matter of personal discipleship, he wants those who are willing. And being willing means being uh, willing to pay the price. I'm going to come back to that in a minute, but let me first talk about quality and quantity, all right? So we're in America, right? We love big things, don't we? Right? Big box stores, big balance sheets, big numbers of followers on social media, right? Big trucks. We live in Texas, right? That'd be big belt buckles too, and it used to be big hair back in the 80s, but I think that's gone the way of history. We have our big homes, right? Our, our McMansions, right? We have mega churches and, and mega marts from sea to shining sea. We've got enough elbow room to go big or go home, right? But quantity without quality is just a cheap import or a homegrown scam. It's just a loss leader in the aisle. Hence then, I think the move, and you probably are familiar with this by now, the, the move over the past decade to introduce quality into, the, into our lives. You've heard it uh, as a consumer when you, when you hear words like artisanal, right? Or curated, right? You've heard those, right? 
those words used to describe certain products and services. It's this idea that what we're, what we're engaging in in this transaction is one of quality, not just quantity. And everybody knows quantity or quality is important. It's just that sometimes that idol of quantity seems more attractive. Yet I put before you, brothers and sisters, there's nothing new under the sun. There may not have been big box stores or big numbers on social media, but the lack of commitment, the misguided desires, and the idols of the age like power and wealth, they were present in Jesus' day too. I mean, sin and how it manifests itself has not changed. Jesus is after quality even as the multitudes have been saved across the ages and around the world. Now, I think in this text, all right, that Jesus does make a distinction between salvation and discipleship, all right, with discipleship an extension of our salvation, okay? But why does he make that distinction? Well, I could tell you, uh, in some sense, you know, it's this idea of people receive and experience the grace and mercy of God, and, and they may even attend church on a regular basis, but the rest of the week, their life, unfortunately, doesn't reflect that saving work of Christ within them. I know as a pastor, I've done plenty of funerals for the saved over the years, but I've been unable to say uh, very much about their life of discipleship as followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? But Jesus puts the number one stumbling block before us. He says to live out that salvation will cost us. If salvation means coming to the cross, discipleship means carrying the cross. And those three parables in the text are his way uh, of cautioning us not to take discipleship lightly, right? Uh, the story about the building, all right, a home. Uh, the second story about the king uh, going off to war. And then the third story uh, about salt. So as we commit verbally to this idea of discipleship, um, and we tell Jesus that we want to take up our cross and follow him. He wants us to know what to expect, right? He wants us to know what we're getting into, uh, that we don't have any illusions uh, about what it is. That if we're willing to call ourselves not only uh, uh, saved, but also a disciple, that we're going to be the stones that he uses to build the tower. We're going to be the, the soldiers in battle to fight the spiritual warfare. That we're going to be the salt that is used to better the world around us. Because at this point, it's all qualitative. You know, it's one thing to respond emotionally or verbally, but it's another to respond with action and intention. What happens if I were to take shoddy materials and build a tower, Right? It would collapse, right? Or if your best tactic in the field is to, is to mass your soldiers uh, against machine gun nests or, or a field of artillery, uh, you're just setting them up to be mowed down. Imagine a, a church full of saved people, but not one of those saved persons is a, is a disciple. <laughs> it wouldn't last very long as a church, would it? There would be no going and baptizing and teaching. The Great Commission would become the Great Omission. So let me ask you this as I ask myself, because I think this text forces personal reflection. All right? 
forces personal reflection on us as followers of Christ to, to, to weigh in on our life of discipleship. How would we grade ourselves, if you will? What quality would we receive? Is our Christian life consistently and consciously different uh, in a good way? than others around us, not in a way that marginalizes them or, or, or uh, makes them feel somehow less than we are, uh, but simply in a way that points people to Christ. Or how about this exercise? Pretend you're a teacher and the pupil in front of you is you, right? Do you as a student meet and exceed the expectations set by Jesus? I mean, fair enough, he's never given us a syllabus for the semester, right? But enough time in worship and the Word and serving, it's not hard to glean and infer those things that are there for us that we're called to live out. You know, if you go back and you think about this text, so he's left the house, uh, the large crowd has surged around him, and he's on his way to Jerusalem, okay? What happened in Jerusalem to Jesus? That's his death, right? It's his death and his resurrection for you and for me. Uh, and, but he, he does not ask us to do anything for him that he has not already done for us. And he certainly wants us to know what we're getting into when we respond from that position of salvation in him. You know, uh, the section of Scripture that I shared with you, as I said, was the message, and it's generally considered a a dynamic translation. It's a little bit easier on the ears. If uh, you were to go back to a different translation of this text from Luke chapter 14, say, even the NIV or the ESV, where this particular Scripture um, says, uh, anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father, mother, and then it lists the siblings, The other texts use this word hate. If anyone refuses to hate, uh, or anyone does not hate, excuse me, if anyone does not hate uh, their father, mother, brother, blah, blah, you know, goes on and on and on. Um, That word hate, it's not in the antagonistic sense that you and I know it's used in the world today, all right? Uh, In that first century, that word that was used for hate actually meant to love less than. All right, to love less than. And so what Jesus is saying that uh, your love for me must be greater than your love for anything else. That you can profess love for family, you can profess love for other things, but that love that you profess for whatever it is you profess has to be less than that love you profess for me. So whatever else it is we say we love, we say and act in a way that conveys that we love it less than we love Jesus. And as he said, even our own life means less to us. That's tough. That's tough. But that is the reality of moving from strength to strength. That's the reality from moving from salvation to discipleship. That's the reality of moving from the sidelines into the game. And that's the reality of having the right expectations and calling oneself a disciple of Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you again for the challenge of Jesus to the crowd, including us. 
that our lives can reflect more than just salvation, but can also reflect discipleship. And so we continue to pray that you would speak to each one of us through your spirit to better understand what that life of discipleship might look like in our context, where we live, where we play, shop, work, those types of things. So we commend ourselves to you and the word as it's applied to our life. In Jesus' name, amen.